welcome to the Pathway Podcast. My name is Sam Speck, and I am the pastor at Pathway Community Church here in Elmhurst, Illinois. I just wanted to welcome you to today's sermon, and my sincere prayer is that this sermon is a blessing and an encouragement to you today, and will be uplifting for your faith and for your walk with Jesus Christ. I hope you enjoy, and please don't hesitate to let us know if there's any way that we can be of service to you. Thank you very much. Enjoy the podcast. Well, I wondered to start if I could uh, take a quick poll of the congregation this morning, take a quick poll of everybody's, everybody's birth order today. So how many, by just raising hands, how many uh, older child, the oldest child do we have in here this morning? Okay. All right, a few of us, pretty good number. How about uh, youngest, youngest kids? How many youngest kids we got in here? Okay, all right. Little, okay, similar, similar numbers. Uh, there's another one, right? Um, oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, I forgot about you. Yeah, the, the middle kids, any, any middle-ish, middle? Oh, okay, we got a middle-dominated church here. All right, I should not forget about you guys. Sorry about that, yeah, we got a... <laughs> Isn't it funny how I was thinking about that this week? Uh, I was thinking about the characters in our story this morning. We're going to be looking at four different people as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at four different people who are around and involved with Jesus during the resurrection. And I was thinking about the way that we think about those four people. And I think that sometimes we focus, and rightly so, sometimes when you understand what characters I'm talking about, we, we focus specifically on one character more than we do the other three. And I was thinking about the birth order of people, and I think all of us, whether you're oldest, youngest, middle child, you all think that there is some sort of stigma or some sort of uh, issue that we have with being the birth order that we are, right? If you're an oldest kid, I'm an oldest kid, we think like, oh, everything was the hardest on us, mom and dad were the hardest on us, everybody, you know, we always had to do things first, I was the guinea pig, right? Everybody, uh, middle kids, always think just what I, the joke I just played right there, that we're forgotten about. No one thinks about us. You know, we just get lost in the middle somewhere. And then the youngest kids, I, I, I don't know, they probably think everything's great. There's no problems at all. I don't know. They're just like, mom and dad loved me. It was awesome. They, they gave me everything I wanted. It was, you know, <laughs> not true, not true, not true. Uh, <laughs> we all have these thoughts. And whether they're true or not, you know, in some circumstances, maybe yes, maybe not. Maybe we just put these things on ourselves. But we all have these thoughts and ideas in our minds about this is how I think about myself or this is how I think I'm perceived. And oftentimes, we can be harder on ourselves or harder on our parents or harder on these certain things. Just And, and, and when it all works out, probably whether you're oldest, middle, or, or, you know, all the way at the bottom as my mom always used to tell me, and, and I'm sure many of your parents used to tell you, I love all of you equally, right? Everybody <laughs> is loved equally all the way through. And now she's telling her grandkids that all the time too. So, <laughs> But the interesting thing is there are situations in our culture and in life just in general where certain people are treated differently either because of who they are or because of the power that they have or the money that they have. That's just a natural thing, right, in the world. I think of like, if, I think of professional athletes. There are certain athletes that can get away with certain things because of their talent, because of the fact that they're talented and, 
and no matter what, a team will always want them to play quarterback for them or play point guard for them or play, you know, uh, you know, left wing for them on the hockey team. There you go, Zach. I need to think of a hockey one there. Um, because of their talent, they can get away with bad behavior. You know, they can get away with, oh, they were, you know, they, they were spotted drunk over here, over there, but something that may get somebody else kicked off of a team or sent away might not happen for somebody else just because of the talent. Things aren't always fair. They don't always work out the way that they should. We know that sometimes people get a worse rap over some things when other people maybe get away with something exactly similar. So today, this, I think, plays out just a little bit. All the people we are going to focus on today, all four people, are all working on their belief. That's the focus of our, of our message today, is belief. Because after Jesus dies on the cross, which is where we left off last week, Jesus had just gone to the cross, died for us, for our sin, and we left off with him being buried in a tomb. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took Jesus and laid him in a tomb. And now we're at this critical point in the lives of the four people we're looking at right now, where they are questioning what is going on, where they're questioning, okay, we just spent a big chunk, you know, few years of our life with this man, and now they're questioning he just died. We just saw him die, and we saw him laid and buried, and they're questioning what now? What's next? Wait, God, is this how it's supposed to be? Is this how it's supposed to go? They're wrestling with that belief, which I think all of us can sympathize and find ourselves in at different places and times in our lives, is wrestling with the belief of, okay, God, what's going on here? Or maybe doubting or wondering, God, what are you doing here? What's happening here? And so we find all four of our characters are, are kind of wrestling with this belief. And they're working on that. And the, the kind of the big idea I want to look at for us today is, is it comes from the, a verse in our passage this morning, which says, blessed are those who have seen, who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So the four characters that are going to make an appearance in our story today, we have John, we have Mary Magdalene, we have Peter, and we have Thomas. Now, you may know if I'm talking about those four characters and we're talking about belief, you can probably single out one in your head right now who you think probably gets the worst rap out of the four, right? Poor Thomas. He got a nickname that goes with his unbelief, right? But I would, I would say that if you look at the stories of all four of these people, and we're going to do that right now, that every single one of them is wrestling with belief in this passage. Every single one of them is wrestling with knowing, God, what are you doing here? What's happening here? And what are you going to do about it? So let's look at the passage together, and we'll see, hopefully we can learn some things through the lives of these people. So right after, like I said, Jesus had just been crucified. He'd been laid in the tomb. And it says, in verse number one of chapter 20, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken our Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So interesting right from the start. Okay, Mary Magdalene, it just, John just focuses on her alone, just mentions her in this passage. Other passages in the other Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention that she was with other women as well. And you can see she actually says that because 
she mentions in her phrase to the disciples, and we do not know. So she, she's assuming that the other ladies are there with her. So they go early in the morning, they see the tomb is open, and their first reaction is to go tell the disciples. You think maybe they're going to tell the disciples because they remember the things that Jesus has said, that this was all part of the plan, and that he was going to be with his father, that he was going to rise again. But no, her first thought when she sees the stone rolled away from the tomb is someone stolen Jesus' body. We get an insight into what she's thinking. So already we see her belief is being tested. She, right away, she's wondering, where did they take Jesus? Who took him? Where did he go? And you don't see the disciples. They don't correct her. They don't say, wait a minute, maybe something's going on here. No, Peter and the other disciple, this is John. So John always refers to himself either when he's writing this book, either as the disciple that Jesus loved or the other disciples. So that's the two disciples we're talking about here, Peter and John. So Peter, in verse 3, went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. I love verse 4. This, <laughs> this verse makes me laugh every time. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is the classic, when you get to write the book, you get to write that you were faster, right? <laughs> like, if Nathaniel and I were writing a book, and it was like, Nathaniel got to be the author, it'd be like, and then I beat Sam in basketball, da-da-da-da-da, you know? Classic, when you're the author, you get to be the fastest. So John was faster than Peter. I don't know why he decided to include the detail. Maybe it was a little Holy Spirit barb to Peter. I don't know. But he outran Peter to the tomb, and stooping in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. It was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a place by itself. So here's already we're seeing some interesting details before we see anybody coming to belief in what had just happened with Jesus. You see that they, they look in, Peter actually goes in, and he sees the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in lying on the ground. And then it says that he sees the face cloth, so the one that would have been covering Jesus' face was not laying with others, it was actually folded and set down in its own place. Now immediately you would think to yourself that maybe this would trigger something because it immediately triggered something in me. Maybe I'm just speaking from the perspective of knowing the story. But if someone had taken and stolen Jesus' body, why would they have taken the time to unwrap him and then not only take all the unwrappings off but then fold his face cloth, right? Seems like that would be an obvious thing. Once a body is dead, you don't, you don't want to be taking it out of the cloth, the linens that it's wrapped in, Right? And yet, when he sees those things, it doesn't say that Peter set, you know, does anything or thinks anything is weird. But we see from our first person this morning, John is the first one we'll see where the belief ticks in this morning. We see that John needed to see the grave clothes. So it says, then the other disciple in verse 8 who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. He saw the grave clothes and believed. I would say John of all the characters in our story today, he needed the least amount of evidence to be seen to know that Jesus had risen from the dead. He still needed something. He still needed something from the Lord. But as soon as he went in and saw the grave clothes, it says that he believed. John needed to see the grave clothes to assure his belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. Because it says in verse 9, for, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. The disciples went back to their homes. So it says that 
the reason that he needed to see the grave clothes was because they did not, none of them yet understood the scriptures. None of them yet understood what Jesus was telling them about how he was going to rise from the dead. So John needed to see the, gra see the grave clothes in order to help his belief. And then we see our next character, Mary Magdalene, shows back up. And it says that we'll see that Mary needed Jesus to call her name in order to believe. It says in verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, if I was just speaking from this story like I'd said in the introduction at the beginning that Thomas gets a bad rap and we kind of let and excuse some of the doubt from the other people in this story, I would say you know, this is not shots at Mary, this is not, you know, seeking to, to go after her, but, but Mary had the most other evidence presented to her before she finally recognized that Jesus had risen from the dead. So, so far, she's seen the tomb, tomb moved away, she knows that the tomb is empty, and now she goes and looks in, and she sees angels sitting there. I'm wondering what she's thinking in that moment that it doesn't quite register that this is weird, there's, there's angels sitting in the tomb where Jesus was. Like, that's kind of crazy. Maybe, maybe something's going on, something supernatural. Maybe, maybe the resurrection should have clicked in right there, but it, but it doesn't because they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. So she's still upset because she's seeking Jesus. She's still looking for Jesus and can't find him. And then it says that when she turned around in verse 14, she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. So now she sees Jesus. She's seen the empty tomb. She's seen the grave clothes. She's seen the angels. And now she's seen Jesus. And yet still it doesn't quite click in because she didn't know it was Jesus. It says in verse 15, she thought he was the gardener. And she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then... In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him, and in Aramaic, she said, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So she sees him, and what does it take for Mary to finally click that this is Jesus, that he has risen from the dead? She needed him to call her by name. This immediately made me think of when we were talking in John 10 a few weeks ago. And in John chapter 10 when it says, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen for his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus knows her name and it's the name, Mary, that triggers her belief and triggers her realization that this is Jesus. Because when Jesus calls by name, there is no mistaking, this is my Savior, this is my Lord. And it's something very interesting, I think, that was, that was clouding Mary's belief in this moment. You see it kind of near the end of the passage. She turned to him, and it says, by, by what Jesus says to her, don't cling to me, it seems like she tries to go, she tries to embrace him, she try, and it seems like a very weird phrase from Jesus, right? Don't cling to me. You know, that doesn't seem to fit with the character of Jesus. And yet what he is seeking to do and prepare her for is that, Mary, I'm not going to be around any longer. It's not, it's not going to be the same. I didn't rise from the dead just to have 
the same relationship with you that I had before, just to walk with you and talk with you and lead you. That was before. Now I'm going back so that I can send the Holy Spirit. It seems like in Mary's desperation, the thing that was clouding her belief was her desperation to have Jesus the way that she had him before or the way that made sense to her before. And sometimes in our unbelief, in our belief, in our lives, Jesus does not show up in the way that we expect him to. He doesn't show up and he doesn't stay in the way that we expect him to. Sometimes Jesus has a plan for us and a purpose for us and a purpose for our lives. And sometimes believing and trusting in him is, is believing and trusting in his character, not in the way that we think he should act or respond to us. And so in a certain way, Mary was hoping to hold on to the idea that she had of Jesus before. And Jesus said, that's, that's not going to be who I am. I'm going back to the Father. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. There is something better coming, but it may not be the way you think or the way you expect or the way you hope it's supposed to look. So Mary needed Jesus to call her by name, needed to break her out of that idea of what she wanted Jesus to be. Next, we'll see Peter Peter needed Jesus to appear in a locked room. In verse 19, it says, On the evening of that very same day, the very first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus shows up in the life of Peter. The door's locked. They're hiding away because they're fearful of the Jewish people. And Jesus shows up just in that room, locked door and all, because he is not the same Jesus that he was when he died on the cross. He is in that, in this new divine state, having risen from the dead. He just comes straight through the walls, comes straight into the room, just shows up and he's there and he's with them. And that's what it took for Peter and the other disciples to realize this is Jesus. He has risen from the dead. And it says that he shows them his wounds. And what does he do? In the same way with Mary, he prepares them that this is not going to be the same way. He said, I am sending you out. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And he gives them a little picture of what, what it's about to look like when, he when they receive the Holy Spirit. After he said this, he breathed on them in verse 22 and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus commissions them and gives them a look forward to what it's going to look like in a couple days when they receive the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes down and is going to indwell them and dwelling on their lives. He's going to come, it says in Acts, it's going to tell us that it comes like a rushing wind into them. And so Jesus breathes on them and says, this is, this is the picture of what's about to happen. You are going to receive the Holy Spirit, and I'm sending you out to do the work that I've given you to do, just as my Father sent me out. Peter needed Jesus to show up in a locked room. And then finally, we see Thomas. Thomas needed to touch his wounds. Because Thomas, in verse 24, one of the twelve, called twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So Thomas, he definitely, I understand why he gets the nickname, why he gets the bad rap. He needed to touch. He needed to physically touch and see to believe. It is, he does ask for more. You know, he says very emphatically, I will never believe. I will never believe. And Jesus comes. I love the compassion and the grace of Jesus to show up and to say, here, Thomas, touch my hands, touch my side. Touch, take a look, examine these things, and you can see and believe. That's the, and that's the amazing thing about our belief, church, is that oftentimes I think maybe we ourselves can fall into this trap. I know that people from the outside can characterize Christianity. Oftentimes they say these words, blind faith, right? Oh, you just, you just have this blind faith in Jesus. And there are elements of faith that require trust in the Lord. You don't always get all the answers and all the evidences to everything you want. But yet, Christianity is not a religion, it is not a faith that is without proof or without answers. And Jesus shows that to each and every one of these people. He shows something to them. He is willing to come and to say, look and to touch, because what he's more concerned about is do not disbelieve, but believe. If this is what it takes, if this is what you need to do, Thomas, in order to believe, then do it so that you may believe and not disbelieve. There are times in our lives where we have to trust in the Lord and we have to trust in his character and his faithfulness even though sometimes we cannot see. And then there are times where God is so gracious and he comes and he basically leads us by the hand and says, you need help to believe? I will show you. I'll show you my hands. I'll show you my side. I'll show you what you need to see because I don't want you to disbelieve. I want you to believe. I want you to believe. In verse 29, it says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's our big idea from the beginning is here he's speaking of the people who, like us, who are going to come after, who will not, we will never, until we're with Jesus in glory, we don't have the ability to be able to touch and to feel and actually examine the physical wounds and body of Jesus. And yet, God tells us that there, Jesus tells those, those men standing there that there is a blessing that comes to those who believe without having been able to see and to touch. And I love how John wraps up this chapter here. He takes a step out of the story for a second to give these two super powerful verses. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole purpose that John wrote this book 
was to write down the signs and wonders that were done by Jesus. And he says there's so many more that he couldn't even write in this book that he did with the disciples. But he wrote these down so that we may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for our sin. That's why this book was written, so that we may believe in Jesus Christ. Thomas, Peter got to see the locked doors. Mary Magdalene got to have her name called. John got to see the grave clothes. Thomas got to touch the wounds. We don't necessarily get any of those things, but we get the very word of God. We get this. This is our way to see what it is that Jesus Christ has done. The first-hand account written by a man who stood next to him, who walked with him for three years and said, I saw these things. I testified to these things. These things are true and faithful, and you can believe in them. These are our nail-scarred hands. This is our feet with holes. This is our spear in the side. This is what you need to believe in Jesus Christ. And there's so much of belief. I think about the fact that he says many signs and wonders, all of these things. I, I read an article this week that came from an, it was a poll put out by an atheist blog. And it asked the question, if God were literally to start doing miracles here on the earth, here and now, would you believe in God? And you know, you would think like, yeah, 100% would change their minds and be like, 42% of the atheists who answered, responded to this question said that it would do nothing to change their belief in God. Because there's an element to belief that it doesn't matter how much proof you think you offer, no matter how many convincing arguments you make, no matter how many, there has to be a willingness and an availability to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. There is an element of belief that always involves that God has to intervene in their lives. God has to transform them. Because with sin and with brokenness, that always is, can be a barrier to God and to what he is doing. And so there are certain times and places where it doesn't matter how many convincing arguments you have or how you know, persuasive you think that you are, people are determined that their belief will not be changed no matter what, not even if they get to touch and they get to see and they get to experience miraculous things. Because I think about the time, there'll be a time, can you, can, this blows my mind to think about this. There'll be a time in history, Revelation tells us, when Jesus will be ruling and reigning on earth from the throne. He, it'll be this millennium of, of peace and prosperity that, that God and Jesus is reigning on the throne during that time, Jesus will be here physically reigning on the throne. And guess what? There will still be people who won't believe. There will still be people who choose to reject Jesus. Because it doesn't matter oftentimes how much evidence you feel like you give or how much things, there are still the hardness of man's heart. Desires to be our own gods. Desires to have what we want. Desires to, to take care of the things that we want to take care of and have control over the things we want to have control over. And so... There will be no belief. There will be unbelief even in those moments. So do not be discouraged, church. It's not all on our shoulders. As Paul tells the church in Corinth, some of us are in charge of planting and watering, but ultimately it's God who gives the increase. 
It is God who makes these things happen, who brings it about. So for belief this week, if we're going to take some practical things for us, I think if there's an action to take, I was really convicted by verse 31. If, there, if you would like to strengthen your belief, if there are areas of your life where you say, I've been struggling to believe or I've been struggling to trust the Lord, I've been struggling to believe these certain things, what verse 31 tells us to do, read the word of God. Spend time reading the Bible because John tells us that these things were written so that we may believe and have life in his name. Sometimes the most powerful, you want someone who has questions about Jesus, who's searching for God, who's looking for these certain things, sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is not tell them about all the ancient manuscripts that were found and tell them about all the, the proof that we have for for creation and all these things, but to take them to the Bible and say, read this and then tell me what you think. Read the really read the word of God because that's what John's telling us. If we want to believe, strengthen our belief, uphold our belief and have life in his name, then you need to be reading the Bible. If there's a prayer to pray, I think it's simply this, Lord, help my unbelief because I think we all have areas of our lives where we doubt the Lord. And we wonder what he's doing. Lord, help my unbelief. And if there's a praise to repeat, thank you. <laughs> thank you that you are patient in my unbelief. And thank you for the life that I have because you died and rose again for me. That's what we can praise the Lord for this week. The Lord is patient with us, just as he was patient with Thomas in our moments of doubt and unbelief. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Pathway Podcast. If you did enjoy this episode, would you do us a favor and follow our show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and please leave a review so we can know how we're doing. We would love to serve you in any way we can, and if you'd like more information about Pathway Community Church, you can visit our website, pathwaycommunity-elmhurst.org. We hope to hear from you. We love you guys. See you next time.